Please uh, turn with me to the 12th chapter of the Revelation. It's the last book in your Bibles. We're going to read the first six verses of this 12th chapter, but we're going to be making reference to other verses in chapters 13 and 14 and the rest of chapter 12. And I will just tell you that I don't have time here to develop this and, and work all of this out, I'll just tell you that these three chapters, I think, are at the center, not just in some sort of literal sense, but um, really in, in terms of what this book is seeking to convey to us, these chapters are at the center of the whole thing, um, and they are wonderful. And as you, as you know, if you've uh, read through the Revelation, uh, there is a whole lot of imagery here, there are a whole lot of symbols, there is a bunch of stuff that is foreign to us, alien to us, um, and so it's a challenge to think about the Revelation, and I will just tell you ahead of time, I'm going to say some things this morning that will be provocative for you, for some of you. Please don't fall out of your chairs, uh, please don't gasp and pass out, um, just call me this week and we can have lunch. And I'll have much more time to unpack for you why I come to the conclusions that I come to about this book. So read with me, Revelation 12, verses 1 through 6. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems, or crowns. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. This is God's word for you, for us, his people. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this uh, wonderful book and for this wonderful passage and for what it tells us about you. Please grant your spirit so that we might understand your word. Help us to be comforted and encouraged and to receive the hope that you intend for us. In this passage, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Our youngest daughter needs a new car. She's driving a 1994 Ford Explorer. It has, we think, about 230,000 miles on it. We don't know for sure because about three years ago, the odometer broke with 196,000 miles on it. It has no air, intermittent heat, and the check engine light is on constantly, which means she can't pass 
the inspection that she needs to pass in the state of Tennessee in order to get her tag for the next year. So she's in a pickle. And she had her heart set on a particular replacement. But she can't afford it. She can't afford it. She simply has to settle for something far less, something frankly quite humble by comparison with what she had had her heart set upon. She is learning how to practice Proverbs 13, verse 12. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Now, it's just a car for heaven's sake. But all of this is to say she's having to learn how to deal with disappointment. She's having to learn how to deal with disappointment. As we've talked with her about this, as we've worked with her through this, it's occurred to me that the best thing, perhaps, that parents can do for their children is to teach them and show them how to live faithfully and hopefully with hope deferred, with disappointment with sick hearts, sick, sad, longing hearts. Now, if parents are to do that, obviously, it requires of them that they learn how to deal with disappointment. It requires of them that they learn to live faithfully and hopefully even with sick hearts. You understand what I'm saying? Bernard Madoff apparently didn't teach his son, Mark, how to deal with disappointment, how to deal with hope deferred. And the reason, I suspect, though I I don't know this for sure, I can only surmise this, but the reason that Bernard Madoff was not able to teach his son, Mark, how to deal with hope deferred is because his hope, Bernard's and Mark's, was singularly entirely, solely in this world, in this world. My friends, if your hope is in this world, your heart will not only be made sick, it will be crushed. And the extent to which your hope is tied to this world, is the extent to which your heart will be crushed. The extent to which your heart is tied to this system of worldliness and idolatry and institutions and powers and principalities, all of which are a part of the world and all of which are raised up against the one true God and His purposes, the extent to which our hearts are attached to these things is the extent to which our hearts will be broken and crushed. And the extent to which our hearts are attached to a hope outside this world, fixed upon a new world that is coming, 
a world that has been inaugurated, a world that is here but not fully realized, the extent to which our hearts are attached to that world is the extent to which our hearts will be kept from being broken and crushed. They will be hurt, but they need not be crushed. They need not be broken. John records the revelation, and Jesus gives the revelation because they are both pastors. Jesus, the divine and ultimate pastor, the revealer and discloser, and John, the under-pastor, the under-shepherd, who is the recorder and writer of this revelation. And they, Jesus and John, speak and write because they love their people. And they speak and write, Jesus being the speaker, John being the recorder and writer, loving their people. They do what they do to give their people hope. Please, understand that. If you're going to have any chance at all of interpreting this book of Revelation, you've got to understand it's given by Jesus and written by John to give hope to the people of God. This book is not given so that people can speculate and guess and sort out and read headlines and try to determine the moment, the day, the hour, or whatever else of the final return of Jesus. If you seek to understand this book, thinking that it is a book written about events that would occur at the end of history, and a book that only in a limited way refers to the things and the experiences and the stuff that is going on in the life of John, you will struggle to understand its meaning. But if you understand this book as a book given to John, for John, for the people of his day, and for the people of God across the centuries between the advents, you have the first key to understanding what is going on in this book. John gives us a clue himself. John writes in the ninth verse of the first chapter of the Revelation before any of the craziness even begins. He writes this, I, John, listen to this. This is amazing, isn't it? I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and in the kingdom and in the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island of Patmos. You hear those three things? John is in the midst of those three things. He is writing as the one who is in the midst of the tribulation. John does not think of the tribulation as something in the future. He was in it. And the people he is writing to are in it as well. And Jesus has revealed these things for them. John didn't think of the kingdom as something off in the distant future. 
He was in it. And he was in it with these people to whom he is writing and for whom Jesus has revealed these things. And together they are being called to this third thing as they try to sort out the presence of the kingdom and the realities of the tribulation. What are they called to? They are called to patient endurance, waiting for the day when the kingdom, which is here but not fully, will be here fully. And the tribulation which has begun to be eroded by the presence and power of Jesus Christ in the gospel, in the midst of the world, will be fully gone and fully eradicated. Jesus' point and purpose in revealing these things, and John's purpose in writing these things, is to give the people of God hope and encouragement as they live between the advents, the first and second comings of Jesus. That's what's being described here. Now, there are three things. One of them I'm going to deal with in some detail. The other two I'm going to have to deal with very, very briefly. Three things that come out of this book, the whole book, three things that come out of this passage, the 12th and 13th and 14th chapters that we're considering this morning. These three things. Something has happened. What is it? Something is happening. What is that? Something will happen. What is that? Something has happened. What has happened? If you look at the text, if you read through this book, you'll find all kinds of verbs in the past tense. Something has happened. What is it? Something is happening in John's day, and something will continue to happen for the church. What is it? And something will happen. What is that? So first, what has happened? John writes this book in the latter quarter of the first century. He's looking at things that are in the rearview mirror for him. That means they happened in the first handful of decades of the first century. Verses 1 through 6 and verses 7 through 17 refer to the same events. They refer to the same things having happened. They view these things from different perspectives. One is, if you will, from the perspective of earth. The other is, if you will, from the perspective of heaven. Verses 1 through 6, you know, if there's been an automobile accident or something where there are witnesses, one person's on one side of the street and sees it from this angle and sees certain things. Another person is on the other side of the street and sees the same thing but from a different perspective and sees these sort of thing. Sometimes when I'm doing counseling, I'll put a coffee cup between the two people who are in dispute and I'll say, what's there? And, and they'll say, a coffee cup, stupid. And I'll say, no, 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 what's there? And so I'll have the person sitting on this side of the coffee cup describe it and she will say, there's a handle on the right. And the other person will say, no, the handle is on the left. You see? And that's what's happening in these verses, 1 through 6 and 7 through 17. The same events, they're tied together by common phrases. The same events viewed from different perspectives. One earthly, the other heavenly. Who are the characters that are here? Well, there is the woman who is in childbirth, there is the great red dragon, and there is the male child who is born. Who is the woman? The woman is the nation Israel. She is clothed, you'll see in verses 1 and 2. 
She is clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet, and on her head is a crown of 12 stars. All of the commentators agree that that takes us back to Genesis 37 and verse 9 and Joseph's dream regarding his father and mother and brothers. If you go back and read Genesis 39, you will see that there is the father who is the sun, the mother who is the moon, and the brothers, 11 of them, who are the stars. Joseph making up the full complement of stars, the 12 stars. So who is in view? Joseph his wife, the sons, representing the whole nation, this particular description of celestial bodies is a reference to the nation Israel. And again, this is a key, I think, for understanding not only the revelation, but for understanding the whole of the Bible. Israel, the nation, exists for one central, supreme purpose, and that is to give birth to the Savior of the world. That is why Israel exists, to bring forth the Messiah, to bring forth the warrior king who will defeat and destroy evil and the evil one. The one in whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. The one who is born to fulfill what was described in Isaiah 25. The veil of darkness that's cast over the peoples to be torn away and thrown aside. The veil of darkness is a burial cloth. The whole of the creation and all people live under a curse. They live under a veil of darkness. And why does Israel exist? Israel exists to give birth to the warrior king who will defeat and destroy evil and the evil one and cast off the veil of death in which the nations are shrouded so that in this one who is to come all the nations will be blessed. And so who is the male child? Who is the child whom the woman bears? The male child is the promised Messiah. The seed of the woman. Cha-ching, cha-ching. I hear Genesis 3.15. The male child is the promised warrior king who comes to crush the head of the serpent. And third, who is this great red dragon? Well, again, verses 7 through through 17 help us with this. Who is this great red dragon? Verse 9 tells us he is the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. Two names. Devil means slanderer. Satan means accuser. What does a slanderer do? Misrepresents, lies about, distorts the reputation of another. Right? What did Satan do in the garden? He became the slanderer. Whose reputation did he misrepresent? Did he distort? The reputation of the one true God who always tells the truth for the good of his people. He is the accuser. The text, verses 7 through 17, tell us that he's finally been thrown down, this one who is the accuser of the brethren. What does he do? He whispers in our ears. He makes accusations. 
You are a foul, disgusting, black-hearted sinner, he whispers in my ear. To which with Martin Luther I say, you're absolutely right. And every accusation you bring against me is just one more opportunity for me to be reminded of whom? The Lord Jesus Christ who has come to take that sin upon himself so that your accusations can have no place in my presence. Who is the serpent? The serpent is the one who has seven heads and ten horns. And this again is imagery that recurs. It recurs in chapter 13 and it recurs in chapter 17. And again, if you understand this as perspectives from different vantage points, every time you see that language, seven heads, ten horns, it refers refers to the same character viewed again from slightly different vantage points. What is the imagery of a head? It refers to sovereignty. It refers to ruling authority. And the number seven refers to what is complete. So the authority that this red dragon has is a a complete sovereignty, a complete authority. And the horns, what do they refer to? They refer to power. And ten is the number of fullness. Okay, you're ready for troublesome comment number, maybe it's three or four or five by this time. But you must understand the millennium to be 10 to the third power. A multiplicity of fullness. You see it in chapters 19 and chapter 20. It is a multiplicity of fullness. Folks, we all understand that the revelation is filled with images, imagery of all kinds, theological imagery. We have to be very careful that we not take in a strictly literal way, things that are not intended to be taken in a strictly literal way. We look to the Scriptures, we look to the Old Testament, where all of these images are embedded and immersed and woven into the fabric of the Old Testament. We look to the Old Testament to interpret these things. Seven means completeness. Ten means fullness. And so what is being said about this red dragon? This red dragon who seeks to devour this child in this scene has full, full and complete sovereignty and power. A terrifying creature. And you see what is happening in this passage in verses 1 through 6 and really through this whole section is simply an elaboration of and an expansion of an enlargement of what is prophesied in Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15 gives us the background by which we understand this passage and in fact this whole book. You remember Genesis 3.15, God spoke after the fall. And he spoke first to the serpent, to the slanderer, to the deceiver, to the accuser. And he said, I will put enmity, hostility between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. That's what you see described in verses 1 through 6. You see hostility between the woman and the great red dragon who is the serpent. You see conflict. You see enmity. 
But then there is this promise that comes at the end of 3.15. He will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. And so what happens from that time forward, from the time of that first prophecy in Genesis 3.15 after the fall, what happens across the whole of the Old Testament period until the arrival of Jesus, until the birth of the male child, is that Satan is given power and authority to cast the veil of death over the nations. You think things are bad now? You should have lived in Canaan before Christ appeared to begin the work of driving the darkness away and freeing people from bondage to Satan. We have no idea what it was like because we didn't live there. I said to somebody recently, you know, I mean, look, I understand things are getting worse. I get that. I can read. I see. The reason we think things are so bad is because things have been so good. If we had lived on the other side of the cross in Canaan where people offered their firstborn children in fire to the god Molech, we'd have a different perspective about how things are now. From Genesis 3.15 across the whole of the Old Testament, the serpent, the deceiver, the slanderer, the accuser was given power and authority to cast this pale of darkness, this veil of darkness over all of the nations. But then, what happened? The child came in weakness, in humility, in obscurity. And look at what is said in chapter 12. This is so interesting. The red dragon is there to devour the child when the woman who is in labor gives birth to it. But the devourer is powerless to devour. Because while at an earthly level it appears that this great red dragon with these heads and horns and authority and power seems to be the preeminent power and authority in all of the cosmos, there there is another power, a greater authority. And by that power and that authority, this child is not destroyed, this child is preserved, and this child is caught up. And notice where he is caught up to. God and The throne. What is the throne a symbol of? Greater power, greater authority, and rule, and reign. I've said this to you before. At least 50 times in this book of Revelation, there is the word throne. 50 times in 22 chapters. That's a bunch. 50 times. And never is the throne empty. Always the throne is occupied. By whom? By the one true God and by the Lamb. Verse 9, interestingly, shows us, I'm sorry, verse 6, shows us the Lord Jesus Christ enthroned, ruling, and reigning, having overcome 
the great red dragon. Nothing is said about his life of obedience. Nothing is said about his death. Nothing is said about his resurrection in this particular snapshot, in this particular image, from this particular perspective. We go immediately from the birth of the child to the reign of the child, bypassing everything in between. Why? Why? It's a pastoral concern, friends. It's not speculation about characters and dates and times. It's a pastoral concern that drives this. And what Jesus and John want the people of God to know is that there is a greater power, a greater authority, a greater king, Jesus, seated at the right hand of the Father. And then as you read through verses 7 through 17, you get more details. Again, If you remember, verses 1 through 6, look at this, if you will, from a kind of an earthly perspective. Verses 7 through 17, look at the same thing from a heavenly perspective. Throughout the scripture, these two realities are always mirroring one another. Right? Paul in Ephesians 6 reminds us of this. Our conflict is not against flesh and blood. It's not against the Roman emperor. It's not against organizations, institutions that are part of the warp and woof and the fabric of this world. Our real warfare, our real conflict is against principalities and powers in heavenly places. Throughout the Bible, these two realities are constantly mirroring each other. What goes on here is mirrored by things happening in the heavenly realm. And that's what you have in this passage. And from the heavenly perspective, what is it that has happened Because the child has come, because Jesus the Messiah has come, because the promised conquering king has come, he has been enthroned with supreme power and authority, with supreme sovereignty ruling over all things. And the great red dragon, verse 9, has been thrown down. He's been thrown down. The same phrase is used again in verse 10, thrown down. If you go back to Luke chapter 10, the middle of that chapter, it is in Luke 10. When the disciples return from their preaching mission, you remember Jesus commissioned 72 to go and preach in the villages and towns. And when they came back, they returned from their preaching. They were filled with joy and they were amazed. They marveled that even the demons were subject to them in the name of Jesus. And it is in that context that Jesus said what? I see Satan fall like lightning to the ground. What is it that conquers? What is it that dethrones? What is it that casts down the serpent? It is the work of Jesus. And verse 10, notice in verse 10 of chapter 12, that when the voice speaks, the voice says this. John says, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of the brothers has been thrown down who accuses them night and day before our God. 
Oh boy, there are so many little dots to connect in this, so many neat little ways to tie this into other things that are going on in the scriptures. I could not help but remember Acts chapter 7 when I was thinking about this this week. Stephen's defense. You remember Stephen's defense at the end of his defense after he's defended himself and he's defended the gospel and he's defended Jesus? He looks into the heavens and he sees one like a son of man standing at the right hand of the Father. Who isn't there? The great red dragon. Who is there? Jesus, the one who has cast him down and the one who continues to cast him down as he frees people from bondage and sin and death. Now, there's one more thing to point out in this before very briefly we touch on the last two. There's one more thing that has happened. What has happened? The child has been born. The child, though it's passed over in these verses, has lived and died and been raised, and the child has ascended to the right hand of the Father, and Satan, the adversary, has been cast down, thrown down, dethroned, if you will. There's one more thing to point out, and that's in chapter 13 and verse 3. In this vision, John sees that one of the heads of this beast, again this beast with ten horns and seven heads with crowns on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads, one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed and the whole world marveled as they followed the beast. Look, if you're a Christian living in the first century and you're listening to this thing be read, you're making it, you're getting it. We're in chapter 12. This is sounding good. The child has ascended. The serpent has been cast down. And then you come to chapter 13 and verse 3 and you hear this. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound. But the mortal wound was healed and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And you're thinking, if you're picking up on Old Testament imagery, if you're thinking about the promise made in Genesis 3.15, what are you thinking at this point? Oh no! Oh no! He failed. He inflicted the wound. But it proved not to be a mortal wound. Wound, the seed of the woman, failed. But then you read farther, and you hear in verses 5 and 6 and 7 of chapter 13 these words, and the beast who was inflicted with a mortal wound, which wound appeared to be healed, the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. You ready? Are you ready for shocking disclosure number five or six? The 1,260 days, the 42 months, the time, times, and half time, all of which appear again and again in these verses, all refer to the same period of time. They all refer to the period of time between the advents. And during this advent, the beast is given these things, a mouth to utter blasphemy, authority, 
utter blasphemy against God, blaspheming his dwelling, blaspheming those who dwell in heaven. It was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. What's the point here? The the point is to ask this question. Who gives the beast this authority? The king of kings and the Lord of lords. He gives him the mouth. He does not blaspheme God apart from God granting him the mouth to blaspheme. He does not exercise authority. He does not make war against the saints during this whole period of time apart from God granting the authority and the power so to do. You see, it looks like, it looks like it all failed. But in fact, the mortal wound has been inflicted, but the full effect of that wound being inflicted has yet fully to be realized. But it will be. It will be. So what happened in the past? The child came, the child was born, the child conquered, Satan is thrown down, the wound is inflicted, and we find ourselves, and this is what is going on right now, we find ourselves, the church, as the woman, we find ourselves, the New Testament church, the continuation of the Old Testament church, we find ourselves in the wilderness. But in the wilderness, the woman, the church, is nourished and protected. And notice this language in verse 6. She is, there is a place that is prepared for her. And later in the passage, she is given wings of an eagle which is the imagery of Exodus 19 and verse 4. It is the imagery of the Exodus. It is the imagery of the people of God being brought to God to be protected by him, cared for him by him, nourished by him day to day, year after year, as God preserves his people until he brings them into his promised land. What's happening right now? We're in the wilderness, folks. We're in the wilderness. What is going to happen? Read the rest of the Revelation. Read 15, 16, 17, and especially 18 and 19. And then read 21 and 22. Because the great harlot, the great serpent, the great deceiver will be cast down and utterly destroyed. That's what's going to happen. But until that time, we find ourselves in the wilderness. We find ourselves with a hope that is out in front of us. And the extent to which I attach my heart to that hope is the extent to which I protect my heart from being crushed. My heart will be hurt in this wilderness. But my heart need not be crushed because the day is coming. When Jesus, the king who has been born, who has defeated the great serpent, 
who has cast him down, who continues to defeat him as the gospel is preached, that Jesus will return again. And when he does, our aching, longing hearts will no longer be disappointed. And my youngest daughter will get the car she's always wanted to drive. <laughs>